Well, good morning, everybody. You're the ones who dared out into this freezing, stinking cold weather. I went outside today to get in my car, and I'd left my car out of the garage because I'm building my wife a Christmas present because I'm the best husband in the room, I'm just saying. And um, I thought, man, I should have moved all that stuff out of the way last night. It was freezing this morning. But I'm really glad to be here with you all. I'm glad you're here today. And uh, I hope today is a blessing. I just want to say real quick before we get into it, today we're talking about one of the hardest texts in all of the Bible. Not the rest of Revelation is easy. This one's particularly hard. And here's why. So there's all these different frameworks for reading Revelation and different ways that people read the book and it affects. So where you start dictates where you end, if that makes sense. We call that a hermeneutical principle. So whatever hermeneutical principle, the principles you start with studying, they lead you somewhere. And so unless you're going to be dishonest to your own hermeneutical principles, then you find yourself in a text like today and you go, <laughs> that's kind of what happened. So in all of these different frameworks for reading Revelation, you've got all these different interpretations for this text. So if you were to just look at all of them, there's all these different people, and this is kind of true from here to the end. It's like, well, I think it's this one inside this framework. Here's my five choices. I'll pick this. So I'm saying we're going to hold today's message with a lot of grace. I hope. I'm hoping you'll give that to me. I'm also going to say this. I believe that there is a message in today's text that for us today, and it's a hard one. So like if you came today, welcome to Kingsway. It's your first time ever. Yeah, you should have waited. Anyway, um, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard and it's convicting, but it's there regardless of all the interpretations of what do these things mean. And so I just want to put all that out there. Now, before we jump into it, I want to talk to you about stuff that Jesus said. Luke chapter 14. I don't have this on the screen for you, but I want to share this with you. Luke chapter 14. And Jesus tells a number of stories and illustrations and points. And in one of them, he says this. He says, uh, I'm going to throw this, this banquet. I'm going to invite all these people to the banquet. And what they're going to tell me is they don't have time to come to my banquet. Some are going to be too busy. Hey, I just bought a new and i got to go check this thing out. And, well, I just got married. Or there's a Colts game today. Or, man, did you see the snow last night? I added a couple to what Jesus said. They're not going to have time to come to the banquet. And Jesus is going to say, that's fine, fine. Now I'm going to send out my servants into the fields. I'm going to tell them, you go behind the briar bushes. You go out into the streets. You gather up the poorest of the poor. You gather up everybody that you can find that's willing to come. You go find the crippled. You go find the blind. You find the beggar. You find the person never would have been invited to this kind of banquet. And you invite them to the banquet. And they'll come in with joy. And when the door is shut, others are going to want to be pounding on that door and saying, let me in, let me in. I'm ready to come to the banquet now. No. It's too late. And Jesus goes on from there. I mean, that, that story in and of itself is easy. It's easy. Those who are most desperate for God are hungry for him. And when he opens up the doors and says, come in, they're willing to come in. But some of us are not all that desperate for God. And so we don't open up the doors. And he doesn't come in. And then he goes on and he tells another, a couple of other really hard stories that lead us somewhere. But he says, look, you need to hate Everyone else in comparison to me. And just to drive home his point, you need to hate your mother and your father compared to me. You need to hate your own children compared to me, your own spouses compared to me. It's like, take the people that you love the most and you must be willing to hate them compared to how you much you love me. And then he goes on and he says things like, consider the cost of being my disciple. Don't be like a fool who sets out to build a tower and gets the foundation built and goes, oh, wow, I'm out of money. I can't finish this tower. Everybody's going to make fun of you. You need to figure out what it's going to cost to be my disciple because there's a cost involved, and you need to consider that before you make this decision. And then he concludes with this, this story. What good is salt if it loses its saltiness? 
Now, if you're a believer and you grew up in church, you've probably heard this illustration before. I mean, that's a whole sermon right there, but salt in Jesus' day had a lot of benefits. It was used to flavor food. It was used to, uh, uh, to preserve things. It was used even for medicinal purposes. And Jesus says, if you have salt and it loses its saltiness, it is truly worthless. You can't even throw it on dung and have any benefit from it. I mean, it would just be worthless. I mean, nothing. Okay, so Jesus, what are you trying to say? I mean, all these random thoughts together like Jesus. What you, like, it's like talking to Matt Nickerson. Like, what, what are you doing? Except for Jesus has a point. And what's Jesus' point? The cost of being a disciple isn't going to be easy. You're going to be in a world where there's going to be immorality and temptation abounding. There's a real battle going on for the souls of men. Even though you don't see it, you're going to feel it. And I want you, Jesus is saying, I want you to consider what it means to be my follower because it won't be the way of the world. And the world's going to tell you one thing. You're going to be tempted at every turn to follow it, but don't listen. Ultimately, at the end of it all, I'm inviting you to a big banquet. We're going to see that in January in Revelations. Big wedding feast of the Lamb. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be beautiful. But many who should come don't. Why? Because they're obsessed with the things of this world and the joys and the pleasures that they bring. And they don't keep in mind the things of heaven. And then what good is salt if it loses its saltiness? I don't even know if that's possible, but what Jesus is saying is simple. There will be people who are going to follow me, but honestly, they don't follow me. They just follow me with name. They don't follow me with heart. And what good is a person who says they love me but doesn't love me? What good is a person who says they're for me but isn't for me? And what good is a person who says, I have faith but I have no works, James says? That faith is dead. And this all fits in to today's motif because right before this story about salt and saltiness, Jesus tells this story. He says, how many of you, if you had an army of 10,000 and an army was coming against you with 20,000, that you would look at them? Wouldn't you gather together your wisest counselors and advisors and you'd say, hey, um, you think we could take them? And they'd look at you and they'd say, I don't know, William Wallace retired last month, guy. I don't know if we could take that army of 20,000. What should we do? Should we go to battle and just get crushed? I think we should probably send out a delegate to argue a, a treaty of peace with them. And, and okay, let's do that. And so uh, Jesus is making in this point, this illustration, there is a real battle going on for the human heart. And when your eyes are finally opened and it dawns on you, I can't win the battle. I'm going to lose. You've got two choices. Gather on the side of the enemy. And continue to wage war against God. Or gather on the side of God and realize that he has overcome the world. Those are the only two armies. The armies of this world and the army of God. And if you're in the army of the world, then you are obsessed with the things of this world. And you're not obsessed with the things of heaven. You care only more about for yourself, protecting your image, your identity, your pride. You're so concerned with these things. But if you're on God's side, then what you're concerned with is his kingdom and his goodness and his glory going out into the ends of the earth. You're more concerned with faithfulness to the king than you are with joy for yourself and pleasure for yourself. Now, the thing that is really ironic about Jesus, he says, if you get this, you get joy too, you get pleasure too, but it's not going to come in those things. They will leave you empty every time. Now, this is all a great setup for where we're going today. Because when we get to Revelation, we see this actual battle begin to unfold. And I'll just tell you straight up, straight up, I don't know if this is all literal or metaphoric or both. Here's what I do know. Let's look at Revelation 16, 16, and I'll make some of this a little bit clearer, I hope. 
Revelation 16, 16. And the demonic spirits gathered all the rulers and their armies to a place with the Hebrew name Armageddon. Dun, dun, dun. Hey, did they leave off the word Armageddon there? Did I? Well, my version has it. I don't know what happened there. Anyway, it's supposed to be there. The word Armageddon is a Greek translation of a Hebrew word. Here's what that means. Why in the world did you do that, John? Why in the world would you translate a Hebrew word into Greek and then put it in here instead of just putting the Hebrew? You've done various things in the text. And why do that? The word Armageddon is literally the word Har Megiddo. Har Megiddo means the Mount of Megiddo or the mountain of Megiddo. The problem is in the Bible, there isn't a mountain of Megiddo. There's a valley of Megiddo. And it shows up all over the Bible. We see it in various places. Uh, We see King Josiah fight a battle around the the valley of Megiddo. We see King Saul when his final death battle takes place. It's around the area of Megiddo. Megiddo is this plain that comes right up off the water. If you were wanting to take Egypt and some of the other places, you would want to take Megiddo. You'd have to. This would be where the battle would be fought. Because if you could get in there, you could go north and you could go south and you could take on some of these major countries. However, this is Mount Megiddo, which doesn't make any sense there isn't a Mount Megiddo. Now there is today, which has some people pointing and saying, ha ha, see, John was prophesying and this is the fulfillment of last days. Look, I don't know. Here's what I know with absolute certainty. Megiddo was a place where many, many, many battles, even in the Bible, took place. Many, many battles. And so when John uses this phrase, the, those who studied the Old Testament would have looked at this and gone, wow, this is a bloody place. A lot of battles, a lot of things are done here for and against the name of God. It would have been obvious to them. So I believe what John is trying to say to us is he's trying to paint a picture about this place so that we have in mind battle motif. We have in mind that there is a real war going on, and it's raging all around us. And then what he's going to do is describe the war as he's already done, but new imagery. So if you remember, a couple chapters ago, we talked about this in Revelation. There was a red dragon coming out of the water, and then there was a beast, and then there was another beast. And all these three things parodied the Holy Trinity. So we had God, Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. Now we have a red dragon, the first beast, and the second beast. And now what we're about to see is there's a harlot or a prostitute riding on this beast, And later we're going to see that it's a scarlet beast, which would point to the fact that it's from the red dragon. So, again, as we start to unpack these things, some of them are clear, some of them are unclear. And depending on which version of Revelation you take when you're reading it will depend on where you land. And I will just say this. I think it's probably like this. If you've ever gone mountain climbing, I moved here from Colorado. Sometimes there are these things called Twin Peaks. And twin peaks are, are literally peaks that are about the same height and same, very similar in shape, and they're usually side by side. But if you're climbing one peak, you can't see the other peak until you get to the top. And then you go, oh, look at that. It's a twin peak. And what that means when it comes to the book of Revelation is this. John, in my opinion, is absolutely writing to the people of his day who were living under Roman oppression and persecution and an evil Roman government. We see that throughout Revelation. However, that doesn't mean that what John is seeing in his day doesn't also reflect something that's happening at the end of time. So it's like coming up on one peak, and when you get to the top, you look out and you go, oh, so this is like that. It's also possible this is like a, a, a triplet peak. So you're standing on this peak of Rome in John's day, and there's another peak or multiple peaks between here and the end time, and so you're just seeing a lot of different peaks. Like, this is symptomatic or idiomatic of all these kinds of things, and then sooner or later it's going to come a last peak. And is that what John is describing? Okay, Revelation 17, I don't know. Well, let me just show this to you real quick because there's still a message for us today. Revelation 17, verse 1. One of the seven angels who had poured out the seven bowls 
came over and spoke to me. Come with me, he said, and I will show you the judgment that is going to come on the great prostitute who rules over many waters. So that tells you right away, prostitutes don't tend to rule, do they? There's something going on here. John is saying something, but this prostitute rules over many waters. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her, and the people who belong to this world have been made drunk by the wine of her immorality. Hang on to that imagery. Remember, we just came out of a chapter. We were told that God was going to force them to drink the wine of his wrath, that he was going to crush them, pour out their blood, and they were going to, they were going to drink on this. It was, ugh, it was like gross imagery, but that's the point. God hates it. But now he's using that wine metaphor. He's describing the immorality of especially, again, Rome in that day and how all of the nations around Rome were drinking of the wine of the immorality, of the greed, of the deceptions, of the idol worship of Rome. And they become infatuated with her. Verse 3. So the angel took me in the spirit into the wilderness. And then I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that had seven heads and ten horns. Seven means completion. Ten means completion. I'll get to that in a second. And blasphemies against God were written all over it. The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing and beautiful jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls. In her hand, she held a goblet full of obscenities and the impurities of her immorality. A few things. Who wore purple in that day? Kings and royalty wore purple. So we know that John is saying, while this person's a prostitute, they're also kings and royalty. He's beginning to lay out this imagery. And then she has a gold goblet. Well, a gold goblet, again, was reserved for power and authority and kings. But inside this goblet isn't just wine. It's immorality. It's obscenity. It's foul what is inside. And yet she's drinking and getting drunk. And she's sharing it with the world to get drunk on. Then notice, <clears throat> verse 5, a mysterious name was written on her forehead. Many um, uh, women of ill repute, I'll try to be clean, in that day would advertise themselves with writing on their forehead. John is drawing off the common analogy of his day, but here's what's written. Babylon the Great, the mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. This is what's written on her forehead. I'm guessing that didn't attract too many people. She wasn't very effective if that was it. Babylon in Jewish language had become known because Babylon, if you remember King Nebuchadnezzar, if you ever saw that Veggie Tales, come on, King Nebi. The bunny, the bunny, ooh. Okay, anyway. King Nebuchadnezzar with Babylon came in and destroyed Israel, carried some like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and carried them off into captivity. And so Babylon, even though Babylon was conquered by Persia and Greece and then Rome, even though all of that took place, Babylon became known in Jewish motif, in Jewish language, as the, the, the um, I don't know what you would call it, the, the marker of evil, of evil kingdoms. So it's pretty clear what John is saying here. It's not that literally Babylon necessarily is coming back but that there is an evil king, kingdom representative of Babylon. It's just like Babylon in the, back in the old day. They're full of idols, false god worship. They're full of demons. They're full of mm, evil things. They're full of sexual immorality. They're full of greed. They're full of all these evil things. And the rest of the world wants a piece of what it has so bad that they've drunk and gotten drunk on her activity. Verse uh, 6. I could see that she was drunk, drunk with the blood of God's people who were witnesses for Jesus. I stared at her in complete amazement. Verse 7, why are you so amazed, the angel asked. I will tell you the mystery of this woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns on which she sits. The beast you saw was once alive but isn't now and yet will soon come up out of the bottomless pit and go to eternal destruction. Okay, so 
What does this sound like? The beast who once was, now is not, and yet will come. What's that sound like? Jesus, the one who was and is and is to come. Again, he's parodying. So Satan, we know, is trying to look like God, but he's a fake, cheap imitation of God. And one of the possibilities, not to get your mind going off subject because I don't believe it's the point, but just one of the possibilities, there's an evil emperor of Rome whose name was Nero. And if you were to translate uh, Nero, if you were to use a, uh, a common spelling and put it in Latin and put it back into the gematria thing we talked about a couple weeks ago, Nero literally comes out, if you spell it Neron, Kaiser, Nero, Caesar, it comes out as 666. Very interesting. It's a possible thing. That's who John was talking about. Nero was as immoral as immoral gets. I've read various historical writings. Nero would throw these massive parties. People would come and just get totally wasted. And he was a weirdo. I mean, he was a weirdo. If you read Romans chapter 1, it talks about sexual deviancy. Nero was like the king of it all. Nero would like dress up like an animal and literally crawl around on the floor like biting at people's private parts. Like, dude, who invited him to the party? But he's the emperor. We're stuck. He was like a weirdo. He killed Christians, would use Christians as like torches at his parties to light the candles with Christians to light the parties. He was just a weird evil, evil dude. But Nero, one of the things Nero do is um, he would trick the other rulers of Rome. He would send out a rumor that he had died in some sort of battle or sickness, and then he would send spies into the room, and anybody who seemed to be celebrating, he would then have them killed. So this left the Roman leadership, this would have been around 60 to 67 or so, this would have left the Roman leadership um, Literally afraid, not sure what to do because they never knew when you heard a rumor if Nero really was dead or not. And I don't speak Latin, so anybody here who took Latin, you're going to make fun of me. That's fine. I'm bad at language anyway. English is my foreign language, and that's sad. Anyway, there was a thing literally called Nero Redivivus, I think is how you would say that. And this whole thing about Nero revived, Nero came back. They were constantly afraid of it. So when Nero actually did die, there was a rumor in that day that Nero wasn't really dead. He was coming back with the kings of the east. You read Revelation, as some of this starts to become relevant, you go, perhaps John is talking about this. But it doesn't matter. Even if John's not talking about Nero, even if John's not talking about some future kingdom, even if we don't exactly know what John's talking about, there's still a message in here for us. I'm getting there. Stick with me. The beast you saw, verse 8, was once alive, but isn't now. And yet he will soon come up out of the bottomless pit and go to eternal destruction. And the people who belong to this world, whose names were not written in the book of life before the world was made, will be amazed at the reappearance of this beast who had died. This calls for a mind with understanding. The seven heads of the beast represent the seven hills where the woman rules. And now we're starting to get some identity here. They also represent seven kings. Five kings have already fallen, the sixth now reigns, and the seventh is yet to come. But his reign will be brief. And now you're like, what in the world is John talking about? Well, let me tell you one reason why I believe John is talking about Rome. But what I don't know, guys, I'm just going to be honest, I don't know if we're looking at Twin Peaks. Now, here's the reason why I believe that John is talking about Rome. It's pretty obvious. Rome was known as the city on seven hills. I mean, this is literally, nobody had uh, the ability to take an aerial photograph in John's day and send it to us today. So this is the best I could do is show you Rome today. This is actually from a, a Japanese NASA. I don't know what they call it, whatever, whatever that word is. Okay, 
So here are the seven hills, literally, two, three, four, five, six, seven hills of Rome. Now this is a modern day picture. Let me just show you a, a kind of an artist's rendering of what it would have looked like back then. So here's the city walls around Rome itself, and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Rome in ancient antiquity was often referred to as the city on seven hills. So it shouldn't surprise us if we get to Revelation and John talks about the city on seven hills and we go, oh, well, he must be talking about Rome. But remember this, Rome was both a city and a what? Empire, a nation. An empire, a nation that was birthed out of the city. It was the major hub of all of their evil, but it was both and. And some of this then starts to become a little bit clear. We're not just talking about a city, although we are talking about a city. We're also talking about a people, a kingdom, and some rulers that go along with it. Again, what I don't know is, are we talking about only Rome and John's day? Or are we talking about Romes that would exist throughout all time? And the Romes, maybe one big Rome at the end of time, I don't know. Because of all of this confusion and whatnot, people have tried to apply this to many things. Popes of the Catholic Church during the Reformation era. The problem, area? Era. The problem with all of this is that when the popes outnumber the kings that are listed, we have a problem. Even in Rome's day, we know with hindsight, there were more kings than there were those that John listed here. Which begs the question, so was John really talking about Rome? And if he did, you know, I can count seven if I get, start at five to get to 12, but it doesn't make sense if, they, if I'm supposed to start at three because then I end up at 10. So it's very confusing, and you're like, I know, I'm still not with you and how this is relevant to life. Trust me, I'm going to get there. But I want you to see this. So we know this. There are seven kings. Five kings have already fallen. The sixth now reigns, and the seventh is yet to come, but his reign will be brief. Here's what I believe that means. If seven is the complete number, standing for all of the number of kings that there are, what John is trying to say is there have already been kings, there's currently a king, and there's a king that's coming. In other words, Jesus hasn't returned yet, guys. And when he does, all the kingdoms of this world are going to come to an end. But until then, there is a real battle, a spiritual battle going on for your heart, for my heart, for your kids' hearts. So engage the battle. Five are, or five have been, one is, one's going to be. But that's not even it. John doesn't want you to just know that there are kings and kingdoms of this world. He wants you to know who's behind the kings and the kingdoms. Look at verse 11. The scarlet beast that was, but is no longer, is the eighth king. Now, wait a minute. You said there were only seven heads. How can there be an eighth king? What are you talking about? It's like you just added a number and totally messed up your perfect sevens, John. He is like the other seven, and he too is headed for destruction. I love this. Mark Moore says this, just to kind of help make some sense out of this. Mark Moore says this in How to Dodge a Dragon. It appears that God is mocking him. Indeed, he did rule, but now is powerless, and when he does appear, it will only be for sentencing. We're going to see that in chapter 19. Second, this eighth king is the beast on whom the harlot or the prostitute rests. For all practical purposes, the beast is the devil incarnate. That's why it says that he belongs to the other seven kings. He is their figurehead and hero. He is the real power behind the earthly rulers that carry out his program. 
Now here's what Mark Moore is trying to say, and, and I'll make it more clear in just a moment. What he's trying to say is there are seven kings, five who were, one who is, one who's coming, and then there's an eighth king. The eighth king is really Satan. That's why he just throws in a number out of nowhere. And all kings who are not on God's plan are on their own plan, which is really Satan's team. Now, before your brain starts to raise to, well, what nations of the world are we talking about? And are we talking about this president or that president? And this president did this, and I don't agree with that, and all these other things. Don't miss the point. There is a real battle in this world. And Christians, you don't get to escape the battle. There are real evil rulers who are going to rule nations and kingdoms, including even ours. And we can sit around and complain about it. Or we can get engaged in the battle. Because the battle is fought in everyday life. When you're fighting for your family to keep it unified and in love and serving each other. When you're fighting for your community to take care of those who can't take care of themselves. You are fighting the real battle that the enemy doesn't want you to fight. He wants you just to join his team and quit. Just live for you and forget everybody else. And it's going to be tempting at every turn. Because power and might and pleasure, man, it, it just sucks you in. It draws you in. It, it'll take hold of you in ways you can't even describe, ways you never thought you would give in to this battle. You will be tempted to give in to this battle. And you'll, you'll lie to yourself with all kinds of tricks and things like, well, it doesn't hurt anybody but me, so it can't be that bad, right? And what you don't realize is all you've done is drunk the wine of Rome's immorality. And just to be clear, guys, I am concerned for how much America sounds like Rome. When you study Rome as a nation, and I look at the things going on in our country, it concerns me for how much America sounds like Rome. But the answer for us is the same as the answer for the seven churches John writes to, and it isn't run away. It isn't get out, be removed. The goal then is for us to live in Rome, but not as Romans. You know, when in Rome, do as the Romans, John would say, no, be in Rome, don't do as the Romans. You be holy as God is holy. That's what Peter writes. In the same way that God is holy, you be holy. Peter also writes, you have everything you need for life and godliness. Everything you need. It's already in you in Christ Jesus. So just serve him and live for him. And don't look like the world. Don't be like the world. Don't act like the world. Don't think like the world. You think like your heavenly father here on earth. Don't run from it. It is what it is. But you are proclaiming his glory and his goodness until that last day, that last battle, whenever it does come. When he triumphs over evil for eternity and he calls you up and he looks at you and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. I was putting my boys to bed the other night and... Um, I was having a hard day, and I was just praying with my boys, and my prayers were like more about the things I was dealing with, and they're like, Dad, what are you talking about? I'm like, just go to sleep. And um, I was just praying, and I remember saying, um, they started asking me questions. I just started answering them as best as I knew how, and um, I said, here's the thing, boys. Daddy just one day really, really, really wants to hear Jesus say, well done. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, Jesus tells us that on the, on the last day, we're going to stand before him. Everybody is. And he's only, he's only going to say one of two things. Either away from me, I didn't know you. Or well done, good and faithful. And I said, here's what that means for daddy. That means for daddy and for you boys, my job in this life is to only do whatever God wants me to do. That's it. Period. That's hard. And they're like, okay, can we go to sleep now? Yes, you can go to sleep now. <laughs> That's it. I don't know about you. That's what I want. No matter how hard it gets here, to hear, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. 
You've been faithful with a few things, so let me put you in charge of many things. So I live every day in light of that as best as I know how. But it's hard when you live in Rome to not do as the Romans. Take a look. Revelation. Verse 17, verse 12. The ten horns of the beast are ten kings who have not yet risen to power. They will be appointed to their kingdoms for one brief moment to reign with the beast. They will all agree to give him their power and authority. Together they will go to war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will defeat them because He is the Lord of all lords and the King of all kings. And He is called and chosen. The faithful ones will be with Him. So now, just look at the way John has laid out the math here. It's very simple, but there are five who are plus one who is plus one who will be. So five plus one plus one, no math in Bible college makes what? I even told, I had to have somebody, hey, can you calculate Brad? Could you help me out? I'm just kidding. I didn't really. Seven plus one, who is really in charge? That's the eighth king that he just kind of throws out there in the middle of nowhere. Plus ten more who are coming. So if you just see the pattern, seven, one, ten. Seven and ten equal numbers of completion. The complete pattern of all kings who will serve Satan rather than Christ. And who stands in the middle of all of these kings Satan. Now, what I would make of this, guys. Now, some say, again, this is going to be ten league of nations and kingdoms that are coming at the end. That's fine. It just seems like every time we think we know who the ten is and eleventh gets added, it just messes up the whole system. And maybe there will be a final ten somewhere, someday, that peak that we're looking at. I don't know, but I know this. It really fits the thematic scheme of what John has been doing in all of Revelation when you look at it, that there are kingdoms who have been, there are kingdoms who are coming, and we live in the middle of these kingdoms. And we don't know if we're at the ninth kingdom or the seventh kingdom, but the most important thing is they're only going to reign for a brief time, meaning their kingdom won't last forever, so don't be tempted to fall into their patterns no matter how appealing it is. Mark Moore, again, in the same book, says this, John may have had ten specific rulers in mind, either of his own day or some future era. If he did, however, it is surely lost to most readers of Revelation. More likely, we should weigh these rulers rather than count them. After all, both numbers, seven and ten, are highly symbolic. They have to do with completeness. With that in mind, these 17 kings shake down something like this. All earthly emperors which rule through Satan's impetus, will share in his destruction. Love that quote, because basically what it means is God's got a team, the enemy's got a team, and you're only going to be able to be on one team. But then notice this, verse 15. Then the angel said to me, the waters where the prostitute is ruling represent masses of people of every nation and language. The scarlet beast and his ten horns all hate the prostitute. Do you hear that? The scarlet beast, Satan, these other kings who are reigning or are going to come to reign, they all hate the prostitute. Even though they're all on the same team, they hate each other. Do you remember what Jesus said? He's casting out demons, and he's being accused of being Beelzebub. He's being accused of being like the king of the false gods of his day. Jesus says, a kingdom can't stand if it's divided against itself. Only kingdoms that stay together, united, unified, and one have any chance to fight. But Satan's kingdom is totally divided. He doesn't care about Rome. He doesn't care about you. See, don't 
Of course you know. Whether you believe or don't believe in this room in Jesus, you know that Satan doesn't care about you. But what you don't realize is the way he tricks you into thinking that he does. You don't realize when you look at it that he's tempting you with joys and pleasures of earth that are leading you afar from God. And he makes it look appealing. And he tells you lies about, as long as you don't get caught, it's okay. And he twists the truth so that as long as it feels good, do it. And as long as it's about you and it's not hurting anybody else. You know, you can handle it. You've got enough in the bank. And he tells you all these lies you don't realize and you buy into them one by one by one. And next thing you know, you're standing on the enemy's team fighting against God, thinking that everything's all good. Why? Because I'm still salty. I still go to church when it's freezing cold outside. It snowed all day. And what you don't realize is it's just salt that's lost its saltiness. It's faith without works. It's uh, uh, hypocrisy. And then you get confronted with texts like this and you realize you've aligned yourself with the enemy and not with God and something has to be done. Revelation 17. I want to make sure I get to the right place. Where are we? Verse 17. For God has put a plan into their minds, a plan that will carry out his purposes. They will agree to give their authority to the scarlet beast, and so the words of God will be fulfilled. And this woman you saw in your vision represents the great city that rules over the kings of the world. Notice who put the plan in their minds. Who did it? God. Who's sovereign over everything? God. Who is in control even when it looks like things are out of control? God. Who is the one ruling from heaven? God. Who can you trust no matter how hard things get? God. Now, because I don't have time to go through all this, chapter 18, I just want to make a few quick points. Look at 18 verses 1 down through verse 3. After all this, I saw another angel come down from heaven with great authority, and the earth grew bright with his splendor. He gave a mighty shout, Babylon is fallen! The great city is fallen! She has become a home for demons. She is a hideout for every foul spirit, a hideout for every foul vulture, and for every foul and dreadful animal. How many? Four. Why? Because she is completely evil. But notice what it is that's evil about her. Verse 3. For all the nations have fallen because of the wine of her passionate immorality. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her because of her desires for extravagant luxury. The merchants of the world have grown rich. Then I heard another voice calling from heaven. Come away from her, my people. Do not take part in her sins or you will be punished with her. This is a voice from heaven calling out to you saying, don't be a Roman though you live in Rome. Don't act like the Romans, though you are in Rome. And I know it will be hard at times. Do not give in to its ways. But notice what it is here. This is huge for us in America. Notice what it is that's being pointed out about Rome. It's her luxuries. It's her extravagance. It's all of her wealth that is so tempting and enticing. Because Rome was so powerful, like much in America today, there were the wealthiest of the wealthy, and then there were the poorest of the poor. And the wealthiest of the wealthy were built on the backs of the poorest of the poor, and they oppressed and beat down the poor and made it harder and harder and harder for them to survive and to make do and that make a living while the richest, now the rich, now the rich got bigger and better and more grandiose and all of the nations around Rome took part in her immorality, not caring for people. Not only that, but did you know in Rome abortion was a norm? 
Why? Well, it's a natural byproduct of a life that is more concerned about self. Reputation or how difficult it's going to be or not sure I can handle it. Historians in ancient Rome talked about how they would literally take hooks and as a woman was giving birth, try to hook the baby and pull it out in order to kill it. And other times they would literally just take the babies, birth them, and then lay them to die. And one ancient historian writes about hearing the cries of babies through the night in Rome and how haunting it was. And how many millions of babies are aborted in our country every year? I don't know the numbers. If I'm wrong on the numbers, please don't judge the number. Hear the message. Do we live exactly in Rome? No, but there's a lot of similarities, guys. The vast, 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 vast majority of the world's pornography comes from here. How many riches of the world are people coming to America to get, and it's coming on the backs of the burdens of other nations? I, look, I'm not even trying to get into political debates and arguments. I'm not. I realize this stuff bleeds over, but I'm begging you to put all those aside for just a moment and wrestle with the God of the Bible as he reveals himself, not as we make him out to be in political debates and arguments. There is truth on many of these sides of the political debates. We as Christians cannot care only about saving lives at birth. We must also care about every day of that child's or person's life until they die. And there's no easy answers. I'm not sitting up here with answers. It's easy to ask questions. All I want you to do is to wrestle with the God who doesn't want you to look like Rome or America for that sake. He wants you to look like himself. And notice as we keep going here, it begins to be more clear what God hates in Rome. Verse 5, her sins are piled as high as heaven and God remembers her evil deeds Due to her, as she has done to others, double her penalty for all evil deeds. She brewed a cup of terror for others, so brew twice as much for her. She glorified herself and lived in luxury, so match it now with torment and sorrow. She boasted in her heart, I am queen on my throne. I am no helpless widow, for I have no reason to mourn. Therefore, these plagues will overtake her in a single day, death and mourning and famine. She will be completely consumed by fire, for the Lord God who judges her is mighty and the kings of the world who committed adultery with her and enjoyed her great luxury will mourn for her as they see the smoke rising from her charred remains they will stand at a distance terrified by her great torment they will cry out how terrible how terrible for you oh babylon you great city in a single moment god's judgment came on you and the merchants of the world will weep and mourn for her for there's no one left to buy her goods she bought great quantities of gold and silver, jewels and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, things made of fragrant thine wood, ivory goods, and objects made of expensive wood, and bronze, and iron, and marble. She also bought cinnamon, and spice, and incense, and myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, wagons, and bodies. That is human slaves. And you're like, wow, John just like start going off? I had a slide that I spent 20 minutes on, and apparently they didn't put it in here. <laughs> Just saying. And I went through and I numbered every single one of these, but since I don't have it, let me just tell you the outcome. There are 28 items listed here, and no math at Bible college, but what's four, the number of completion on earth, times seven? 29. Everybody knows that. 
What's John trying to say? There's a message in the message. Rome is completely evil. But what is it about Rome that's evil? Do you notice it? She's obsessed with the goods of this world, spices and fine wood and nice clothing. She's obsessed. She's greedy with the luxuries of earth. She doesn't care about heaven. She cares about earth. That's what he's saying. And then he closes out, and the very last line there is bodies. That is human slaves. In other words, what John is trying to say, he's getting very political here. What John is trying to say is simple. The temptation towards wealth will tempt you to not care about the things of God. We live in the wealthiest nation the world has ever known. And friends, I am tempted, I don't know about you, I am tempted all the time. That's just me. And here's why I say all that. I don't say it to beat you up. I don't say it to make you feel guilty or to walk out and go, oh, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I'll sell all my money and give it to the poor. Yeah, Jesus did tell one guy that in all of the Bible. One guy who loved stuff more than him. Let me just give you some principles to apply. Jesus says it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. I believe, by the way, some people try to mistranslate that. Well, there used to be this thing, this gate called the, the camel's eye, and, and camels had to duck down. It was really hard for them to go into the sink. That's fine. We just have no historical document of that place ever existing. Somebody made that up, started it in a sermon, and then the story just kept going around, 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 and around, which is great. I'll just make up all kinds of things here today, except there's no historical proof of that. I think what Jesus is trying to say is actually what Jesus said. It's hard. It's impossible, almost, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I, mean, I guess you could grind him up and drain him through it. But it's harder for a rich person to get into heaven than that. Why? Because you will be tempted at every turn to love stuff more than God. It's a truth, guys. It's not a truth I'm making up. Jesus said it. I know it because I live in Rome, and I'm tempted to be like the Romans. And I love God. So how do we fight this temptation towards greed and luxuries in Rome? How do we do that? We fight it through the power of the Holy Spirit and a heart of generosity. That's how we fight this battle. That's why Jesus says this. This is just Jesus' words here. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. He says, store up treasures here on earth. Do not. Sorry, let me say that again. Do not store up treasures here on earth. I should actually say what Jesus says. Make his stuff up again. Where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Because wherever your treasure is there, the desires of your heart will also be. So what do we take from this? Before we go any further, what do we take from this? Jesus is saying, look, when your eyes are consumed with the things of this world, then your lives will be consumed with the things of the world. But when your eyes are fixed on heaven, you can't find enough ways to invest in heaven. You can't literally send your gold bars into heaven or your houses into heaven or your cars into heaven. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is focus your eyes on the things of heaven and then the things of earth will grow strangely dim. That ought to be a song somewhere. And it's still hard because I still go to the store and I still go to Lowe's and I take my boys out to places like Chuck E. Cheese yesterday and they still want to buy those stupid toys they're charging me double for and go to the Dollar Tree and buy it for them. And the things of this world are constantly tempting all of us, are they not? I'm not saying you don't live in the world. You live in the world. I'm just saying don't be made of the world. Jesus goes on in the same text. He says, verse 22, your eye is a lamp that provides light to your whole body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. Well, what's the other side of that? When your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, 
Watch out how deep that darkness is. Like, don't miss this. What Jesus is saying is your eye will lie to you. Because when you're in Rome, you're going to be tempted to be like a Roman. And it's easy to look around. It's easy to look around. But everybody's doing it. Look, I can find you a pastor who's doing it. I can find you a godly man or woman who's doing it. If it's okay for them, it might be okay for me. Jesus is saying just be very, very careful. Because if you actually think you're walking in light, but you're actually in darkness, and you're just confused and lost, oh, wow, your darkness is profoundly deep. And then he closes and he says this, verse 24. No one could serve two masters. You're going to hate one and love the other. Or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I just want to leave you with that last part there. Here's some questions to ask yourself. Is God first when it comes to your finances? Is he? In the Bible, we call this first fruits. If you see somebody in need and you have the means to meet it, does your heartstrings get tugged to do something about it? Or are you cold and calloused and have excuses why God's not calling you to do something? If you know somebody in need, the Bible says, and you do nothing about it, you just say be warm and well-fed, but you don't actually meet the need, you, do ha- you have no faith. Are you looking for ways that you can invest your lives in the lives of other people? Do you know in your heart there's some dark area that nobody else knows about but you know about and you just don't want to confess it, you just don't want to admit it? When you go to make a purchase, is the thought on your head, hey, I think this would be cool for good, godly, healthy reasons, or is your thought in your head, man, I want to do this because somebody else will see it or somebody else will approve of me? I don't have any great question. Maybe I missed the right question for you. I just know these are some of the things that guide me. As I'm making purchases and following my heart, and sometimes my heart gets tripped up by darkness, I find myself going, okay, God, is this really about you or is this about me? If I do this, will it prevent me from having the funds necessary to do more for you? Man, I want to stand before my king and hear him say, well done. Not away from me. I didn't know you. And so I know this is a hard message and a depressing message and not a rah-rah message, but realize you are engaged in a spiritual battle. You are. Are you winning? I want to pray for you. And um, I want to pray that God would break you and me of our pride and our obsession with this world and fix our eyes on him. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I pray right now your spirit would move and speak. I don't know about these seven kings and ten kings. I don't know what they all exactly mean. I know this. Satan is the king behind all the evil of this world, maneuvering governments and religions and greedy people and greedy nations to do evil things. And I know that the nation I live in, in far too many ways, looks like Rome. And God, I know it's tempting to drink of her wine. So God, I... I pray for us as people who love you that we would literally fall on our face before you, humble ourselves under your mighty right hand, but instead of being crushed by it, Lord, would you take it and lift us up. Free us from the love of this world, God, that we might be free from this world and free to love you. Because if the Son has set us free, we are free indeed. We love you, God. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.